Thanks for tuning in to the Revival Tabernacle Podcast. Wherever you may be listening from, we hope that this message encourages you in the unwavering, unconditional love of Jesus Christ. Join us as we reach sinners, raise believers, and release leaders. Please enjoy the message from the RT Pulpit. Kind of last night as I was praying, I was like, God, what, what would you have for us today? What would you want to speak? How can we, um, what do you want to do in our hearts? And so um, it's a message. I'm going to read a passage of scripture again. Um, it's, it's, not found, it's a familiar passage, but I'm going to share it a little bit in a different way. Um, and, and so don't just tune out. It's found in Genesis chapter 37. So if you're there, you can go to Genesis chapter 37. We're going to pick up the story of Joseph. But we're going to look at it from a little bit of a different light here. It's Genesis, I'm going to read in verse 2, just read a couple of passages. And let me, before we read there, let me just give you a little bit of background. Again, it's going to say here, Joseph's going to be 17 years old at this time. Okay, so Joseph is part of a big family. And just so you know, it's a pretty big dysfunctional family. Anyone got a dysfunctional, no, you don't have to, you know, no, no, you don't have a dysfunctional family. But you know, we all, we, we, we just pretend like we don't have them, but we know people that have those dysfunctional families. You know, you got just, it's just all kinds of crazy things happy. Well, Joseph's family is very dysfunctional. And we're going to look at this because when you read it, we kind of start here and we think that this is just about Joseph's story, but we're going to find out this really has little to do with Joseph's story and even Joseph's coat, what we're going to read about here. And we're going to look at this. It says this, this is the account of Jacob in verse two, uh, Genesis 37 says, Joseph, a young man of 17 was tending the flocks with his brothers the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. So again, just so you know, what Joseph is doing here, his brothers, he's got, and he kind of names them. There's, there's his father is named Jacob. Jacob had two wives, and we're going to look at them, Leah, and one of them's name's Rachel. But then it also says he's got these half-brothers, and they're from the maidservants of his, of his father's wives. And so doesn't that already sound kind of messed up? You got half-brothers everywhere. You got, you know, you got two wives, and so you're like, what is this? It's just, it's pretty dysfunctional. And then, it, and then it, on top of it, it goes in here, it says that Joseph, and it's telling the account of Jacob, it comes back and Joseph, is, he's a snitch. You know, this phrase snitches get stitches, you know, and so it's like he's a snitch. He's coming back. He's been checking out his brothers, you know, the half brothers, the full brothers, his, his brothers from his aunt. Uh, you know, that's kind of weird. And so, and he comes back with this bad report about him. He's, he's, he's telling on them whatever it is that he saw, whatever they were doing while they were tending the flocks. And at verse 3, it continues, though. It says, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age. Now again, that's pretty key because we see that Joseph doesn't just come with a dysfunctional family. He's got half-brothers and half-half-brothers. I don't know how you would even clarify this, but he's got brothers. I mean, there's all kinds of baby mamas, you know, one baby daddy, but a lot of baby mamas going on here. And so he's sitting here and, and out of all of them, here's what it says, Joseph was loved more than any of the other ones. Pretty key. And it says this, and because he had been born to Mahoz old age, and he made a richly ornamented coat for him. So here it is, we got our coat. And I know that we've talked about this a lot. Joseph, the coat of many colors, right? This coat is, is symbolic of the, the father's favor, the father's approval, the father's elevating him, Joseph, the favorite son above everyone else, right? We've all heard that. We've, we've read the story and we're going to know. We'll come back and we'll pick up what happens to this favorite child. But I want to tell you something today, that this story really has nothing to do with Joseph. It has to do with 11 brothers who never got a coat. It has to do with 11 half-brothers, 11 others in this family dynamic who grew up in a very dysfunctional environment 
And then at the age, and at this time, they're young adults, they're late teens. Joseph was 17. The only one younger than him was Benjamin. And, but these ones, these brothers are now at the most late teens. Most of them will be in their 20s. Some of them might even be in their younger 30s. They're young adults. But they're a messed up family even in the young adult age. How many know what I'm talking about there? <laughs> that can be a whole nother sermon of what happens there. But we're going we're gonna to kind of track what it looks like to grow up with no coats. Because I think today in our society, what we're seeing around this country, around this neighborhood, in the communities, in our workplaces, I think there's a lot of people who grew up without coats more than we ever would imagine. We're not talking about the little, the ski coats, the, the fluffy ones. I don't, I don't wear a coat. I like literally for you because one of the things I always heard in the winter months at RT, at our 11 years serving here, was I would never wear a coat. And they're like, Pastor, where's your coat? And so I made sure today I brought a big coat. And as soon as I got in the house, I took it out. It's on the back chair. If someone wants it, you can have it. I, don't, I mean, I probably won't wear it again. But it's just like, but, but coat, it's, I'm not talking about those type of coats. I'm talking about something entirely different. And so let's rewind and let's look at this family because again, we start Joseph's story at Genesis 37, but can I just tell you, it starts way before Genesis 37. It starts way before there. It starts with this family and, um, and it starts really in Genesis chapter 29. And I'm not gonna read all the scriptures, but, but before we even look at this, think about this, how significant it is. Studies show that the early child development ages, you know, when, the, when a child is just born, those first few years are critical to the development of a child. They're, they're so critical to it's developing the majority of their, their brain, their neurons and the pathways and so that they're receptive to learning. Between the birth and ages of th just three years old, those first three years are so critical in the formation of a child's life. The first five years of a child's life, they're so important. It's the foundation. It, it shapes the children's, uh, the child's future health, his happiness, his growth, his development, his learning achievement. I mean, it is so important. They need love. They need nurturing to develop that sense of trust that will be so critical in the ongoing uh, adolescent years and teenage years and adulthood. They need to nurture, the experience that unconditional love, that trust, that nurturing, the security that turns into confidence so that they can grow up with, their, with a confidence of who they are, knowing that they're accepted, knowing that they've been loved, and, and it's so important. And so this is what we're gonna look at. Because when you look at Genesis 37, we're going to read about some crazy things and we're going to track these 11 brothers or these 11 kids who had no coats. We're going to track them from their earliest years. We just, we're going to look at them in their young adult years and then we're going to look at them when they're in their 60s, 70s, and 80s just to leave nobody out today. And we're going to look and we're going to try to learn from them and so that we can understand what it means to live a life with no coat, with, with, without coats. And if we have lived a life without a coat, how do we respond? How do we move forward appropriately so that we can kind of end up like a Joseph in this story? That we can become the ones that God, that we discover our, our full potential, our greatest purposes that God formed us and created us. But we will never learn that if we live a coatless life. So here it is, Genesis uh, chapter 20, or actually Genesis chapter 29, it begins. I'm not going to read it. We're gonna, it's really found in Genesis 29 and chapter 30. I'm not going to read it. It's real long for time's sake. But here's the backdrop. Jacob, we know that Jacob had a brother named Esau. After he, betray, he stole the birthright, deceived his brother. If you remember in Genesis, Jacob, who is Joseph's father, begins to run for his life. He ends up coming to a, a new land, and he ends up coming and finding shelter with his uncle. Anyone remember his name? His name was what? Uncle what? 
Laban, Uncle Laban, you remember that? So he stays with Uncle Laban, and as he's approaching Uncle Laban's home, he kind of, it's, it's a divine appointment takes place, and all of a sudden, it's one of Laban, Laban had two daughters, and his daughter's names, the oldest daughter was named Leah, the youngest one was named Rachel, and it was at there that all of a sudden, Jacob kind of connects with this family, and he ends up serving them and watering their flocks and so forth, and, and so there was a great connection, but in verse 13, after Jacob had stayed with Laban for about a month, Laban begins to say to him, says, you shouldn't work for me without pay just because we're relatives. Tell me how much your wages should be. And now, and it goes on and says he had labors. And so here's what it says. The older daughter's name was Leah. The younger was Rachel. And it, listen to the description here, just so you know this. There was no sparkle in Leah's eyes, but Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. You know, so in other words, here it is. Rachel was kind of one of these, like, ha. Ah. And Leah was kind of one of those, like, hmm. It's kind of like, you know, you got the one, you look at her, and you go, knockout, drop dead gorgeous. Woo, she's fine, she's hot, look, she's nicely fought, woo. And then Leah's kind of, I mean, it gives her the description. She had no sparkle in her eyes. She's just dud. It's like, you know, what's up with that? And so, so it said, so since Jacob was in love with Rachel, he says to Laban, I'll take, I'll work for you for seven years if you give me Rachel, your younger daughter, as my wife. So in other words, uh, Jacob goes, I want the hot one. <laughs> I want Rachel. I want the youngest one, but that's the one I'm attracted to. That's the one I'll work for for seven years. Now, again, even the, the names, um, Rachel, you know, again, it, it's, just, it's just everything about her, her name, mean, the meaning of her name, it just all depicts this, she's just lovely. She's just bright and alive and vibrant with color. Leah, again, her name literally means one who is weary. And some of you know what it's like to be married to one who is weary. Or you know someone or you've seen someone. It's not your marriage, but you've seen some. But, but in other words, Leah gives this, it says everything about her is like, she's this worry wart. She's just always kind of like, you know, it's just everything is complicated. Everything is perplexing. And it would just, she's wearisome. And that's, that's what her name means. That's what probably Jacob saw between them. And so as the story goes on, here's what happens. Jacob works his seven years, and now all of a sudden it comes time for him to get his bride. And the custom of the day would be this, that, that there would be all of a sudden a wedding feast, and then the night would come. And in verse 23, it describes this. It says, at night it was dark, and here's what happened. Leah and Rachel's dad, Laban, pulls the switcheroo, and instead of giving Rachel the one that was like, ha, he gives Leah, the one who is, and gives her to Jacob as the bride. And so he says it's dark, and it says this, it's kind of crazy, but that night when it was dark, Laban took Leah to Jacob, and he slept with her, and, but when Jacob woke up in the morning, it was Leah, and he says, what have you done to me? Jacob raged at Laban, I worked seven years for a wager. why have you ticked me off? And he goes on and explains that it's not custom, and I sit here and go like, is like Jacob, like not there. Like, how are you gonna pull this? But the custom of the day, you gotta understand. The custom of the day in the wedding feast is the bride would be content, would be um, completely covered. She would have um, she would have a what do you call them? A veil over her face. And so what happened? It was dark at night. She was veiled. And I don't know if the the, the custom of the day. I've read up on it now. And and nowadays they even it's still practiced in in the Jewish customs and traditions. But they will literally on the honeymoon, kind of like they stay veiled, and it's, and it's kind of part of this story, but I don't know if he was just like, like, here's Rachel, and he could care less of taking the veil, I don't know what happened there, but regardless of the fact, um, Jacob himself was deceived. He ends up now being married to the one who was just, hmm. <laughs> and now he com he's confronted, he confronts um, his uncle, and they make another arrangement to now all of a sudden that just, just says this, he agreed to work seven more years. And so a week after they've been married, Jacob and Leah, Laban gives Rachel to be his wife now too. But he's got to work seven years. So here it is. Jacob all of a sudden has two wives. That's like, oh my goodness, that's, 
One is, no, one is easy. Just kidding. I've got the greatest. It's, it's, but I mean, he, he's now into it. And here's where all of a sudden you read the story. You're going to start reading all this stuff. And if you just read the scriptures, we don't really understand the context of what's happening on. But now in this home, this dysfunctional family is now about to go chaotic. It goes from not just Jacob has two wives, but now they're going to begin building their families. And now there's going to be a battle that rages on within Jacob's family. It talks about, here it is, Leah first. She's the first one who now, who is now becomes impregnated. She now, she has her first child in Genesis 29, 32, and she names him Reuben. Now these are going to be the 12 tribes of Israel, but just get this. Think about this. You're naming your son. How many know names are significant, right? Names are very significant. So here's what happens. These 12 tribes, which will become the 12 tribes of Israel, they're being born, but they're now being born in the midst of a war raging on between two wives competing for baby daddy's attention. She now has baby one, Reuben, and now she names him Reuben for this reason. The Lord had noticed my misery and now my husband will love me. So now every time baby Reuben's crawling on the ground, she's not just saying Reuben, she's thinking of this child with a context that now that I have this baby boy, I will be noticed by my husband. Oh yeah? Many of you who've experienced that sometimes having children complicates a marriage relationship more than it helps a marriage. <laughs> and so, so now the one that she thought would get her notice, she now has a second child. And he names, she names him Simeon. And now it is this, Simeon. She names him Simeon in verse 33. For the Lord heard that I was unloved and has given me another son. So think about what is beginning. Reuben, associated with her misery. Simeon, associated with her being unloved as a mom. Now there's Levi, and surely this time, meaning, surely this time my husband will feel affection for me. And since I have given him three sons, and so now the baby number three is born, Levi, and now Levi's associated with this neglect. Then Judah's born, and we know Judah, right? Praise, you know, bring down the praise. You know, I, I don't even know the song, but I'll write my own version. Judah praise, but think about this. The context of Judah's praise was this. She names him Judah, saying this, now I will praise the Lord. And the context was this, because God gave him, her another son. And you know what? The other wife has none. And so therefore, because of her misery, because she's being withheld, I'll praise God. Think about that. Think about a distorted praise that we praise because not of what God has done or what God has given, but we praise with the context of what God isn't doing in someone else's life. And so you see these kids growing up. There's misery, there's unloved, there's, there's neglect, and there's praise because I now have four boys and she has none. It's like the score, four to zero. Genesis 30, enter Rachel. <laughs> and it says this, when Rachel saw that she wasn't having any children for Jacob, she became jealous of her sister. And she pleaded with Jacob, give me children. So they have this argument. And they come to this conclusion. She says, well, take my maid, Billa, and sleep with her, and she will bear children for me so that I can have a family. And so Jacob goes along with this thing. I don't know what Jacob's just a, he's not a man's man here. He's just a player. And so he, he's, he now goes, and so Rachel gives him her servant. And now all of a sudden, this is what happens in verse 36. Billah, Rachel's servant, gives born, bears another son, and his name is Dan. Which now means this. Rachel now names him Dan, and this is her thoughts. God has vindicated me. He has heard my request and given me a son. So Dan isn't just lovely Dan, good-natured Dan. Dan is vindication. Ha, I got you now. Then all of a sudden, Billa has another son, Naphtali, and he said, for I have struggled hard with my sister, and I'm winning. And so now all of a sudden, the second child that is not Rachel's, it's her maidservant, she's naming him struggled or I'm winning now. Can't you see this 
dysfunctional family that's growing up. You have misery, you have neglect, you have, you have I'm winning, you have, I mean, it's just, it's crazy. All through these early formative years, these kids are being called, are being viewed with this as their thing. This is the context of this family home. And it goes on. In verse 30, Zilpah, Leah's servant then comes. And as soon as when she stopped having kids, she said, you know what, you can, Jacob sleep with my maidservant. So now they have Gad and Gad is born. And he, that means how fortunate am I? And then all of a sudden Asher's born and it's what joy is mine. Now the other woman will celebrate with me. It has nothing to do with the well-being of a generation being raised up, the well-being of a, of a child growing in a nurturing and caring home. It's a competition that's taking place in Jacob's home between, between two women struggling for the attention of their husband. And now the kids are nothing but pawns in this match. And then Genesis 30, 14. Are you with me? Say amen. I gotta give you some background here. Genesis 30, 14, I'm gonna read you this story here because it's this, it's really important. It says this, one day during the wheat harvest, Reuben found some mandrakes growing in a field and brought them to his mother, Leah, okay? Leah was the one like, like lonely Leah, you know? Uh, and, and Rachel, who was like, I'm trying to think of our word with Rachel, like ravenous, or you know. But Rachel, who was hottie, she begged Leah, "Please give me some of your son's mandrakes." But Leah angrily replied, "Wasn't it enough that you stole my husband? Now will you steal my son's mandrakes too?" And Rachel answered, "I'll let Jacob sleep with you tonight if you give me some of the mandrakes." And so that evening as Jacob was coming home from the fields, Leah went out to meet him. You must come home and sleep with me tonight, she said. I have paid for you with some mandrakes so that, my, that my son found. So that night he slept with Leah and God answered Leah's prayers. She became pregnant and again gave birth to a fifth son for Jacob. This is sick. I don't know what is up with Jacob, but he is a wanted man. But here's this, I want you to hear this significant. It's over this mandrakes. Think about this. Context. Reuben, one of Leah's son. Picture this boy growing up. He's at an age now where he can go out in the fields and help mom out, right? He's hunting around the fields and he's looking for mandrakes. And he's hunting for them. He's looking for them to bring to mom. And then when he finds these mandrakes, he brings to mom and the other woman is begging and wanting these mandrakes. And I was like, what is the deal with mandrakes? And here's, let me just share something. Something so interesting is what mandrakes, back in that culture in that day, mandrakes, they were like this blue looking flower thing. They were known for fertility to help women get pregnant. And so think about this. A son growing up in the home, seeing the misery of his mom, being called and named, you know, neglected, being called and watching his brothers and this, this turmoil going on. And now he's out there helping his mom, trying to find something to help his mom get to have another baby. So that why? So that dad would love her and show affection to her and probably show affection to her kids. And he's out hunting for them. And then he finally finds these mandrakes that are so important. They're going to they're gonna help mom out. And she comes and then the other woman says, give them to me. I want those. And then Leah on top of it was so desperate. She now goes, okay, you can have those. I just want, I want them for a night. Why? Because more than anything, she wanted to feel cared and appreciated and valued and loved for by her husband. And so what happens, Rachel gets the mandrakes, um, which is kind of just like a tradition, thinking that's gonna help with fertility. And God doesn't help her out. You know, God hears Leah's cry. She, Leah has another child. And that child's name is Issachar, meaning God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband as a wife. That's sick. She's like trading her husband to go sleep with another woman and she's naming her son after that night <laughs> that you were born because 
because I sold this so dad would have to spend the night with me. And it just goes on in Genesis 30. Leah becomes pregnant again to her sixth son, Zebulun. And again, she says, because God has given me a good reward, now my husband will treat me with respect for I have given him six sons. This woman's on a mission to be respected by her husband. And so the son now is gonna be, and you see this, and it's just, and it goes, she gives birth to a daughter, Dinah. And then finally, at Genesis 30, Rachel. Rachel, the one that Jacob always had his eye on, always loved. She all of a sudden, it says, God remembers her, answered her prayers by enabling her to have kids, and now she has a son, and she names him Joseph because God has removed her disgrace. She has Joseph, and then later on, she's gonna give birth to a second son named Benjamin, and, in, in, and that's in Genesis 30. And so that is the family. That's Jacob and his boys, and he has one girl named Dinah, but that's the family there. Isn't, can you imagine growing up in that home? Can you imagine growing up when you have uh, one of it, like that's my mom and that's my aunt, and they're just fighting each other because they're both married to the same person. And then the offspring who have to live and see the pain and the hurt and the rejection that their moms are going through, feeling not valued, not cared for, not appreciated, not, no attention given to them. And then the sons now have to begin to bear at a young age in the most formative years of their life. They're now sitting and watching mom be just, just, just be at the lowest place in her life. They grow up in that environment. And then you would think, in Genesis 36, Rachel dies while giving birth to Benjamin. And so you would think, right, that at this point, that with Rachel now gone, everything would finally become normal, right? I mean, now... There's no competition. Rachel, it's not against Rachel and Leah. Leah's now, or Rachel's now, has passed. It's just now Leah with Jacob raising the entire home, raising the family. And you would think finally, as dysfunctional as it is, there's a chance for normalcy. But I'm just gonna tell you something. Far from it. Because what I've learned is this, is in life, The offenses that are left unresolved in our lives, the bitterness that we've watered, the seeds of offenses that have been watered and nurtured and allowed to grow, even hidden under the, the soil of our hearts, will eventually, listen, they don't just go away if they're not dealt with. They end up growing and they begin to turn into fruit. What is not forgiven, listen, doesn't go away, it gets passed down. And it gets passed down in a form, oftentimes, of not just anger and bitterness, but I think the crisis that we see today is coats without, kids without coats. They've been raised in a home where mom and dad never learned how to deal with conflict. They were raised in environments where there was sibling rivalry, and there was jealousy and there was competition for all the wrong reasons, not just the healthy Duran Devin on the court. You know, Duran, Devin beat Duran all the time, so Duran's just got to deal with that. But I mean, it's just, it's just, but it's nothing to do with that. It's, they're starving for attention. They're starving for mom's attention, dad's attention. They were raised in an environment where there, were, there was starvation, where there was, they were thirsting. They saw mom, and, and so when it's all said and done, what happens is when you get to the Joseph's beginning of his story in Genesis 37, we find out something, that when these kids in their most formative years have been raised in this environment, when a family where they were never given a coat, they were never given love, they always had to figure and try to earn approval, earn attention, earn affection. They were always wondering and always competing and that was the environment that they were raised in. When they finally become teenagers and young adults and they see their father give a coat that is symbolic of his approval, his unconditional his love, his favor upon Joseph, something snaps in the lives of these 11 kids without coats. 
The issue isn't Joseph got a coat. The issue is there's 11 that wanted a coat. And there were 11 that never received it. And they spent their early childhood years watching this battle going on within the family. Listen, we have a lot of problems in our society today. The racism, the hatred, all this stuff's going on. Listen, that's not a this generation thing. This is the last generation. This is unresolved stuff in people's lives. So we can really get, it's, listen, I was, I was born in the 70s, but it's a lot different raising kids today than it was back in the 80s and 70s. And for those who were raised by parents in the 30s and 40s, listen, it was a different day and age, wasn't it? And so we look at our kids today and we sit here and say, why is this happening? How in the world can we be at this place in our country? And I just have to venture to say, I think there's a lot of kids that grew up without coats when they're young. And then what we begin to see is this, stuff like this happening in Genesis 37, when all of a sudden the Bible says that they see Jacob with this coat and it says that they hated him even the more they hated him and they realized that their father loved more, them more than them they grew up to hate him they grew up to hate him it didn't happen overnight hatred was growing hatred was being it was being developed it was being nurtured in the heart of these 11 brothers because what they saw growing up they never saw how do you deal with forgiveness, how to deal with reconciliation, how do you mend fences, how do you deal with hurts, how do you trust God. They never learned that growing up in their formative years, but now all of a sudden they're put in this position and they're seeing someone get something that they so desperately want themselves, knowing that they deserve that themselves, knowing, I mean, they, they know that, and now all of a sudden hatred is what's beginning to grow in their heart. And it goes on, and we know the story. Joseph has these dreams, and when he tells them about their dreams, it says they hate him even more because of his dreams and the way they and the way that he talked. And then he has another dream about you know, his father and everyone bowing down before him. And it says now his brothers were really jealous, and so it's just this ticking time bomb is taking place because these eleven brothers have never been given a coat. Their moms were never given a coat. They've never been valued, never been nurtured, never been cared for. They've only been been taught to just bury the past, ignore the hurt. They've been taught that's what they lived. And now all of a sudden it's, they're getting jealous. And then all of a sudden it all comes to this heading point when Joseph comes out there and you know what they do? They end up seeing him and they push him in a pit. <laughs> and they go, we're done with you, Joseph. We'll deal with everything else, but we're no longer dealing with you because that's what, what, kids, what kids who grow up without coats do. Out of the neglect and the voids in their own lives, they will push those who have the very thing that they long for and desire. They will hurt those that God was putting in position to actually help them, and they didn't even know it. Do you see as a young adult these 11 brothers with no coats, their upbringing, how difficult that might have been. Maybe you've had an upbringing like that. You long for the day that your dad or your mom would just love you. Or you looked and you saw how it just seemed like they loved little Johnny better than you. How you could try your hardest and get a C and then you saw your brother taking the shortcuts and he can pull off an A and they're like, oh, you're the greatest and they just never recognized all that you've done, or on the workplace, a boss, because you go above it, you're doing everything you have, but because you don't get the results of other people that draws the attention, you just sit there and you just feel, and you just feel like, I just, I want to cope. I want to feel valued. I want to feel appreciated. And no one will give you a coat. And not only that, but they give it to others. And then you got to deal with the emotional wounds that come because you see others wearing a coat. And you're watching and you're saying, why not me? Well, let me just give you one more timeline. Go to Genesis 50 if you have your, are you with me? Say amen. Yeah. Sorry, I'm a little, I haven't done this for a while. So I'm like, this is kind of like fun. 
Because for the last year and a half, I just got, I get to go to churches and go, I was stabbed 37 times. And yeah, yeah, yeah. and I'm like going, okay, I, I, I long to be able to like, I love to talk about the Bible and not about this. And so I'm like, this is like, oh, I told Sarah, I go, this is going to be really weird. Because it's like, everyone wants to come tell your story. I'm like, can I talk about what God has done? No, we want to hear your story. I'm like, I don't care about the story. <laughs> and so this is so, so, all right. Genesis 50. Let's look at verse 15, because now I want you to see something. What many people don't know about, how many have heard this verse? It's, the, it's kind of the climactic point of the story in Genesis 50, 20, when, when Joseph's looking at these brothers and he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good for what's accomplishing right now. We, we've all, how many have ever stood on that promise? Kind of when we say it, what the enemy has meant for evil, God has meant for, turned it for good for what's being now. And so we know that verse but I want you to see something because one of the things we don't do when we read the scriptures is we don't connect dots. And I want you to see that when Joseph and when this conversation is taking place in Genesis 50, it is now been 39 years after his brothers had pushed him into the pit. Now you're talking about 69 years later since those early childhood days for these brothers. Almost seven decades have passed since that upbringing and that environment. Almost four decades have passed since the brothers have pushed them into the pit. You would think, because right, time heals all wounds, right? Time is what we need. We just need time to get over it, right? And so we have this conversation in Genesis 50, verse 15. And it says, when Joseph's brothers, and again, when you read Joseph's brothers, think of it as the 11 brothers who didn't get a coat. When the 11 brothers who didn't get a coat <coughs> saw that their father was dead, here's what they said. If Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him, or what if, what if, they says, what if Joseph holds back, holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before we died. This is what we're to say. Ask you to, we ask you to forgive your brothers and sins and the wrongs they committed treating you so badly. So now please forgive the sins of the servants of your, the God of your father. They're not asking Joseph forgiveness. They're saying, Joseph, forgive us because dad wanted you to forgive us. And so they're, they're kind of putting this on there. And said, when their message came, Joseph wept. So in other words, Joseph, even though it's been 40 years later for Joseph, when Joseph now begins to talk about this moment in his story, in his past from four decades ago, it evokes this emotion in Joseph that he begins weeping and crying. It says he weeps uncontrollably. And so it says his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him and said, we are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? And I want you to see something. Because when you grow up with no coat, when you grow up not knowing how loved and valued, when you grow up in environments when you're not been nurtured, and you've been grown up in environments where there's always a competition, and it's always about getting, getting, and getting, and there's always someone who doesn't get. And it's, it's that kind of dysfunctional and painful environments. It doesn't just go away with time because when I look and read this conversation at the end, towards the end of their lives, I see something. I see these 70 and 80 year old adults who were raised with no coats, having this, living by this what if scenario in life. What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back? They're fighting and dealing with anxiety in their life. And they're worrying about something that happened 40 years ago. I guarantee you, Joseph ain't even thinking about it. But when you've grown up with no coat, you will be anxious about many things instead of being anxious about nothing and taking everything to the Lord with your petitions and in prayers and supplications. They were afraid. What if Joseph comes after us? Let me ask you a question. <laughs> Do you live by all these what if scenarios in life, kind of paralyzed, stuck in that? This fear that whenever you look forward towards your future, you're afraid that what if, what if 
what if this happens because this is what happened in the past? Maybe it's all going to come full circle and it's going to catch up to me. The other thing I see pretty amazing by these 70 and 80-year-old adults is they didn't just operate by what-if scenarios, but they find it difficult to trust God. Because if you go back when they first were reunited with Joseph, Joseph tells them, listen, you didn't do this to me. God put me here. God was ordering my steps. God was at work. And he reassured them and then proved it to them by taking care of them and bringing them up close to them. And he served them. He gave them homes and had them move. I mean, so he not only said, listen, this isn't you. This is a God thing. Uh, God is in this. These guys, 40 years, it didn't matter what Joseph said 20 years earlier. They still were struggling with trusting God. And I have a reason, believe, belief that the reason they had trouble trusting God is because they had yet to forgive themselves. They struggled in their 70s, 80s, struggled with this whole concept of forgiveness and being forgiven and reconciling relationships. And so what they do, instead of just saying, we're sorry, please forgive me, they have no idea, and so they concoct the story of forgive us because dad wanted you to. It was just like his last wish. They don't understand that even if Joseph did, it doesn't mean the reconciliation and relationship, it's got to be authentic. <laughs> it's got to be real. It's genuine. It's not just getting the words out, I forgive. There's something that happens in the heart. And then the last thing I wrote down about these 78 years, who, people who grew up with no coats, is they can easily be taken advantage of. Think about this. His brothers, the leaven with no coats, they come and they throw themselves down to Joseph and they say, we will be your slaves. If Joseph wasn't a good man, those brothers who grew up with no coats would have easily been taken advantage and manipulated, enslaved, forced to do things out of this, you know, you owe this to me. But thank God Joseph was a good man, right? And here's the thing. Let me ask you two questions, and then I'm just going to share you something the Lord's been dealing with me. A question I want to deal with you with the coat was this. Who got the coat you wanted? Think about it. Has someone received a coat that you desperately desired longed for, worked for, served for, and you did all these things and you just wanted a pastor, a leader, a father, a boss, a spouse to come and just put that coat right around you and say, I love you. You are so important. You are so valued. Who is it, though, that you've seen Get those coats in your life. And you found yourself kind of a little chilly. Another way to put it was this. Who is it that you want to push in a pit? <laughs> Who is it that you want, maybe not to just kill them, <laughs> but you know what? When you hear the news of God doing something good in their lives, there's something that just kind of triggers off in you that goes, I hope that just, <laughs> I hope they get tripped up. I don't want them to succeed. I want them to pay a price. I want them to know they hurt me. See, that's how we push people into pits, is we push people down so that we can be the ones elevated. Do you struggle with that today? Because having a coat isn't all about being warm in the winter months. Having the coat is walking and God's given values, how he values, how he values you, how much he loves you, how much he's for you and not against you. God has a coat for each and every one of you today. And those 11 brothers, they never were given a coat. And you know what? They never got to enjoy what it was like to be part of a real family. 
They never got to experience what it was to really experience God's calling. And yes, after they're gone, because Joseph, when he was dying, he says, he, he gives them the final words. He says he's about to die. And he says, God will surely come to your aid and, and take you up out of this land and the land of the promises on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they're gonna, their generations are going to have a great history. Joseph takes care of their grandkids. They got, but they never experienced the Joseph type of life and discovered the Joseph type of purposes for their life. Why? Because they always lived without a coat. God wants you to have a coat. So I'm going to worship him. Come, I'm just going to share one last verse with you. Are you okay with this? Amen. Sorry. I'll just sit around here. I'm like, I love you. I'll just like pant down. Um, the last people ask me this question. <laughs> Kevin, what have you been doing for the last year and a half? <laughs> Where have you been? <laughs> Um, good question. <laughs> I have been a year and a half or so when God led us to step down at, at this church. Um, all we knew was God wanted us to make room for him. <laughs> That's all that we knew is God wanted us to make room for him. And during this journey God has taken on us, it's been so crazy because I have basically been on a mission to fulfill and to, if I want to call it master, I don't think I'll ever master it because Paul never mastered it. But I realized there was so many parts of my life that, um, that were broken. Some of those things were broken from the attack that we went through. Some of those were a result of growing up in a home where in certain parts of my life I never got that coat. Some of those were being part in the ministry life of working with pastors and leaderships and churches where things take place. And then all of a sudden, you kind of find yourself like lost and you feel again like you don't have that coat. And now you're trying to navigate through your identity, who you are, all this. And so I've been on this journey. And, and it's the verse God gave me. It's Philippians 13, 14. It's a very familiar verse. And I'm sure I preached it here before. But let me just take it back to you because there's something profound. Because how many want to end up like Joseph and not like the 11 brothers? See, there's a key. Let me, let me and I'll go back there. The key to Joseph, when I studied Joseph's life, in Genesis uh, chapter 41, um, Genesis chapter 41, I believe it is, Joseph, something happened in Joseph's life. Joseph become a dad. How many know when you become a father, it changes everything, doesn't it? In Genesis chapter 41, 18 years after this, he's been pushed in the pit, Joseph becomes a dad. And now all of a sudden, for the first time, Joseph has the ability to change up what he saw from his childhood and to now instill into this new family that's going to be created, kind of the right way to do things, trusting God with God in the center and all of those type of things. And so Joseph becomes, and so we always look at Joseph at the end, what God did, for, what you meant for evil, God did, and that's great, God did it, but Joseph, how did you get from the pit to this place? Because I don't know if I could get there. But there was something significant that took place in his life that kind of has just, I mean, for the last year and a half, I, I've just been, I've been just stuck here. And I've just been praying. It's been my daily prayer. It's been my battle. But Joseph becomes a dad. And, and just like his mothers did, he named his kids, and he named his kids with a, with very, um, with a deliberate intent to it. He names his kids, and it's verse 50 of chapter 41. It says, before the years of famine came, he has two sons um, by, by asking a daughter of Potiphar, a priest of An. Joseph named his firstborn son Manasseh. Now stop right there. If you're looking, don't read any further. He names him Manasseh. Now think of it. Joseph and his upbringing, when the kids were born, do you know what they're naming them? Neglect. Payback. Maybe he'll love me now. Hurt. Rejected. He named, they, they, his family, his brothers were all named 
by what they didn't get or by something that happened negatively in their life. But Joseph comes, he names Manasseh. It's 18 years after the pit experience, after his brothers have did this. He names his firstborn Manasseh and he says this, it is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. So how did Joseph end up like, like you did it, Joseph? You're not like the 11, but it wasn't just because he had a coat, but it was because there was this moment on his journey where Joseph not only forgave his brothers, but he forgave them, but he also forgot what they did and everything about his father's household, it says. So that means he forgot his upbringing, the circumstances, the situations. How many would like to forget some things that have happened in your past? See, that's my story. That's my journey. It's taken me a year and a half, and I found that I've got these things in my life that have been raging war within me that I've got to forget. But how many know, unless you get amnesia, <laughs> and unless something happens, forgetting is not possible, right? You can't lose your memory unless something medically tr transpires. But Joseph didn't have a traumatic event. Joseph, it says, God made him forget all of his father's household and all of his troubles. How many want to forget some people in your life? <laughs> how many want to forget some troubles in your past? Because you talk about them an awful lot. You live in those wounds a lot. And so all of a sudden, Joseph, he forgets. So the question for me comes is one, what does it mean to forget? And how does God make Joseph forget? Well, I'll give you a quick version. How many know this? When God forgives us, the Bible says this, he not only forget, forgives us, but he also says he remembers our sins no more. So here's my question. Does God forget your sins? Can God tell you what you did yesterday that you've asked for forgiveness? Can he bring it up and tell you that? Could he recall that right now? Yeah, he can. Why? Because he's an all-knowing God, right? He can. But God remembers our sins no more. When God says he remembers our sins no more, what he's speaking about this, he says this, I will no longer, in regards to what you've done in your past, I will not allow what happened in your past to affect our relationship today, change how I feel about you right now, affect your standing with me right now. In other words, no matter what you've done in the past, that's the past. I remember it, I could tell you what you did, but I'm just gonna let you know, as far as me and you, it's as if it never happened because it has no effect on me. In other words, Jacob, when, Joseph, when he forgot, when God made him forget all of his father's household and all of his trust, it doesn't mean he can't, he forgot because when his brothers brought it up in Genesis 50, he wept, right? He remembered. But it meant that 18 years after he pushed him in the pit, Joseph got to the place in his life where what happened in his past no longer was affecting his present. And because of that, then now God can begin to rewrite his future. And God can begin to use that which was meant for evil in his past for good. But if you don't forgive and forget, if you don't let go and get to a place where God causes you to not allow what has happened in your past to affect you today, change the direction of your life today, you will live a stunted, a coatless life. So Paul says this, this one thing I do, Everyone say the one thing. See, I literally took it like that. Paul says this one thing I do, and Paul could have said, I do a lot of things. But he says, every day I wake up, and this one thing I gotta do. For the last year and a half, I've been fighting this battle of this one thing I gotta do. I've gotta forget some things that are behind me. And he goes on and he says this, listen, not only forget what's behind, but you gotta strain towards. And not just strain towards, I want you to press on toward the goal to win the prize which is in Christ Jesus. And so I've told this story, but it's so true that the key to forgetting is not that there's gonna be an absent of memory, but what Paul says here is he says the one thing I do, but he gives you three things, forget. He tells you to forget, he tells you to strain, and he tells you to press on. But it's like, Paul, are you schizophrenic? You said one thing, you gave us three things. What's up with that? You sound like Pastor Kevin. <laughs> and I'm like, what is that? Paul is painting a picture for you and I. 
It's a runner in a race. And he says, every day I wake up and I'm the runner. And what I got to do is this. The gun has gone. See, how many ran track before? Any runners out there? I ran track. First track, the 400 meter. I think I remember, I ran the 400 meter in a whopping one minute, 21 second, got first place. I was like, Olympics, here I come. The second track meet I went out, the gun went off, and I was, it was a hot day. I was racing around those corners. I was digging. I was, I was leading. I was all the way in the last 100 yards, something tragic happened. The last 100 yards, as I'm running, all of a sudden, I heard something. As I could see the finish line, all of a sudden I heard something. I'm running as fast as I can, all of a sudden I heard this. I heard the footprints of the other runners. And all of a sudden I heard this. And I, I heard and felt their hot, smelly breath on the sides of my shoulder. And then the moment when all of a sudden I realized those runners were right here, here's the first thing I did. See, when Paul says the one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, he's talking about what place are you running in the race? Are you running from the lead? Are you running from first place? Or are there parts of your story, parts of your past that are running from first place and you're simply following them now? You're just letting them kind of take the lead. Because if there's parts of your past that are running from the race, that means this, you're just constantly looking at them. And then the second thing, when he says straining forward, he's talking about not just your place, the place, the, your position in the race, he's talking about your pace in the race. And so when he's talking about straining forward, he's talking about which way are you leaning? Are you leaning forward? Because if you're running as fast as you can, you can only lean one way and that's forward. But if you're not running in first place, you can only lean to the speed that the thing in your life is that is running in first place is controlling you because that thing or that person is controlling your pace in the race. And so if they slow down, you gotta, you gotta slow down. And God doesn't call you to live that type of, run that type of race. You run from first place. You lean forward and run as hard as you can. And it says, and you press on towards. In other words, you've got to run a race with a focus. You've got to find out who you are running towards, what you're running for, what's the why behind your what. The what is always Jesus. But you're running to Jesus and you want to be the best dad. You want to be the best father. You want to be the best parent. You're running from first place. You're leaning forward and you're focused in on Jesus and here's what happens. How you magically forget those parts of your life is this. It's because you're running from the front, you're leaning forward and you're so focused. The picture Paul gives this is that you absolutely forget that there's things in second and third and fourth place trying to overtake you in your race. You don't even realize that they're there because you are just concerned about your race, your goal, and it, it, it just doesn't even matter. And so you never stop to do this. How did Joseph end up at this place in his life? Discovering God's purpose, taking care of those who even hurt him. Listen, he forgot 18 years before. It no longer had an effect. He was so focused, he became a dad. And he said, God's made me forget. I'm not, I'm not gonna repeat what I saw through my parents. God has a plan. God has a purpose. God's called you to run from the lead, Revival Tabernacle. Pastor Devin's called you to run from the lead. Pastor Devin's leading this. There's people around him and there's gonna, people that are gonna doubt and say, but you know what, You're, every day you got, I'm gonna run from first place. I'm gonna silence the voices, I'm gonna look for it, I'm gonna lean for it, I'm just gonna run as hard as I can. See, I had to go through that. I apologize if I've hurt anyone in this place by my absence over the year and a half. It wasn't out of a rejection towards you. It was because God needed to do something in me. There was things in me that I had to let go of in me, parts of my painful past, parts of my relationships with people and just overcoming insecurities and rejection to the place that I rediscover that God has given me a coat. God has a purpose and he has that for you. Would you stand with me to your feet today? Come on, can we just lift our hands and praise him right now? Father, thank you. Thank you that you are at work. Thank you that you're at work. 
Thank you that you have a coat for me today. You have a coat for us today. Thank you, Jesus, that you are alive, that you are well. Thank you that you resurrect dreams, that you keep hope alive. Thank you, God, that there's no weapon formed against us that can prosper. That, God, the people have wronged and hurt. People have abandoned and turned you away from you. That, God, that they don't limit you. That, God, that you're in control. If you're here today and you would say, I don't know about God's forgiveness in my life. I struggle because I can't forgive myself, so how can God forgive me? I want to tell you, friend, if you just confess and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. God, I've sinned. Will you forgive me? Not only will he forgive you, but he gives you such a brand new start that what you've just prayed for forgiveness is no longer going to be on the table between you and God. If you're here today and say, Pascal, that's me. Would you pray for me? I'm away from Jesus. I need God's forgiveness in my life. I need help maybe even forgiving myself, but ultimately I need God's forgiveness. If that's you, wherever you're at, just slip your hand up and say, pray for me today. Pray for me. Is there anyone on this cold and winter day? Is there any of you? Yep, in the back. Anyone else? Yep. Anyone else? Pray for me. Okay, secondly, here it is. If there's someone in your life or you've lived the life struggling with whether you should push someone in a pit. <laughs> struggling that the fact that other people are wearing coats and you still feel naked. I don't know what your story is, but today God's calling you to run from the lead. If that's you, or if you said, I need Jesus, I'd love to pray for you. Would you just come and just come to the altar right now? I'd love to pray for you. If there's one, if there's two, if there's none. But my past has limited my future. My past, people, the wrongs, my upbringing, my raising, I don't know. I've been labeled, I've been, I don't know what your story is. Anyone else, yep. Anyone else? Run from the lead, run from the, Father, would you just stretch your hands towards these right here today? Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, there's no magic prayer here today, God. God, we're all sinners. We all need you. God, we can't forgive ourselves because, Lord, until we first know that we are forgiven, God, we don't honor. Your forgiveness is the example by which we can forgive ourselves and then also forgive others. So, God, I'm asking you right now for a revelation of your forgiveness for each one person. You remember their sins no more. You remember their sins no more. You remember their sins no more. Their sons, their daughters, nothing could change that fact. You love them more today and it will never be any greater or less than you do right now. There's nothing that they can do to earn your approval. You already approve. You've already prepared a coat. It's a robe of righteousness that you're putting upon them right now, God. It's a white robe. It's a clean robe. It's because they've been redeemed. They've been saved. They've been born again. They belong to you. They're part of your family, God. So now, Lord, I'm praying for the parts of our lives and our past that we've got to wage war against. Like, Paul, the one thing I do I forget what's behind me. I run from the lead from this day forward. I run from the lead. I'm not gonna allow my insecurities lead me. I'm not gonna allow what this person said about me 10 years ago to have an effect on my life. I'm not gonna allow this being overlooked by this leader or this pastor or this boss. I'm not gonna allow that to influence me now. I'm gonna run from the lead. Everyone say, say run from the lead. I'm gonna run from the lead, and Lord, we're not only gonna run from the lead, but we're gonna run fast. We're gonna run fast after Jesus. We're gonna lean forward. We're gonna lean forward. We're not gonna look over our shoulders no more. We're gonna lean forward to the high calling in Christ Jesus. Our eyes are fixed upon you, the author and the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. We're gonna run hard after you. And Jesus, here's what we're praying. As we commit to running to the lead, leaning forward, keeping our eyes on you. Lord, now you do your part like you did with Joseph. Make us, you make us forget. You make us, cause us 
to no longer have an unhealthy relationship with our past. You cause us as we run after you, as we run from the lead, as we run forward, make the past no longer have a sting, make it no longer have a grip, silence the footsteps, silence the distraction, silence those things that would used to trigger us to talk about what happened or look in the back or go to the memory book. Let it be a trigger that says, nope, I run faster now instead of looking back. I pray in Jesus' name, would you do a marvelous thing. Thank you for Pastor Devin. Thank you for Courtney. Thank you for the leadership of this church. I pray the blessings of Jesus Christ, his presence, his anointing upon this house each and every day. We pray, God, fill this sanctuary with those who are lost, that you would use this church to reach the sinners, to raise the believers, and release leaders. God, do that amongst this place. But in the midst of mission, let us never lose sight of how much you love us in your presence. We give you praise and we give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. community at Revival Tabernacle aims to reach our city and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus. Thank you for your support. If you want to further connect with us, you can find us online at www.revivaltab.org.